What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, today I'm going to turn that question around on you, Danny, because we're talking about the Middle East. We're talking about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict that has broken out in Gaza. And unlike 99% of the topics we discuss on this podcast, you are actually an expert on this. (laughs) Wait, folks, let me just take a moment to pause and and wipe a a single tear from my eye at that beautiful and heartfelt compliment from Mark (laughs) Tathan. Folks who've been sort of watching this with the corner of their eye see that there's a a battle royal going on between Hamas, a terrorist organization based in Gaza, backed by Iran and uh, and and Israel. Uh, missiles are flying. Hamas is deliberately targeting civilian sites. You know, little boy was killed by a missile that flew into his bedroom. There have been heartrending scenes, and there have been civilian casualties on the Palestinian side as well. Although I really think it's important that people understand. One of the main reasons why there are casualties on the Palestinian side is very much why there are casualties, for example, when there's a conflict with Hezbollah, which is that these terrorist organizations use hospitals, schools, kindergartens, nurseries, private residences to house not just their fighters, but their weapons factories, their weapons caches. And so, of course, unfortunately, um, innocent civilians get killed. It's a bit of a mess. It really is. And it's going to end up badly for the Palestinians because that's the way it always ends. Just wanted to read you a quote that was in the Washington Post today from, I think, the Israeli ambassador to the UN. He said during the Security Council meeting, Israel uses missiles to protect its children. Hamas uses children to protect its missiles. That's the difference between what the Israelis are doing and what Hamas is doing. No, I think that's absolutely right. And in any of these situations, you have to ask why it is that this fight broke out. Why did it break out now? And cui bono? Who is benefiting from this? And I think the answers to that, to answer my own question, are Hamas. I'll just stay out of this. I'll just keep going. (laughs) Hamas and Iran are the ones that are getting the most out of this. And that's a sad fact. You know, to call this an Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really a misnomer because it's not. It's an Iranian attack on Israel by proxy. Hamas is funded by Iran, answers to Tehran, the rockets, I think it's now almost 4,000 rockets that have rained down on Israel. They're all provided to them by Iran. So this is an Iranian-Israeli conflict by proxy. And so to say this is a this is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just wrong. It's not. So what is Iran up to here, Danny? Why has Iran chosen this moment to start this conflict and what do they hope to get out of it? So I actually had a long talk with some of our colleagues, Fred Kagan and others, and some of our friends over at the Institute for the Study of War about just what Iran is thinking here. And they laid it out very clearly. Basically, for Iran, the Biden administration is an opportunity. Right? What's going to happen? They're about to re-enter the JCPOA, the so-called Iran nuclear deal. They are pushing forward on every possible front. So, for example, we see them attacking uh, U.S. targets inside Iraq. We see them 
upping their assistance to the Houthis in Yemen and accelerating attacks on Saudi Arabia. And we see them pushing on their proxies, Hamas and others, to attack Israel. And why are they able to do this? You would think, right, that they would be nervous, you know, because, I mean, maybe the Biden administration will be upset. And that would be bad for coming into the JCPOA. Well, you know, that was actually the question I asked. And what our colleagues said to me is, no, 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 no. First of all, the Biden administration has made 100% clear that it does not matter what Iran does. They can do almost anything and the talks will go forward to re-enter the JCPOA. From Tehran, first of all, that's a carte blanche. Second of all, Tehran has learned an important lesson from the Trump administration. One day you've got warm, fuzzy, beautiful Barack Obama to deal with. And the next moment you have that SOB Donald Trump. So you better take advantage of the opportunities you have while you have them and move forward. And that is 100% Tehran's calculus here. This is really interesting because, you know, the reality is, is that when Donald Trump came into office, and he did all these things that broke the, the China of the, of the Middle East expertise establishment, right? He actually, unlike the, all of his predecessors who promised to move the embassy to Jerusalem, he actually moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He was a, probably the first president who didn't base his entire policy on finding the peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians. He focused instead on Arab-Israeli peace. And John Kerry, who was the previous Secretary of State, said that moving the embassy to Jerusalem would completely inflame the region, not just in Israel and the Palestinian territories, but the entire region. And it didn't happen. Peace broke out because Donald Trump stood firmly with Israel, didn't play this sort of both sides stuff that the Biden administration does. And he put a maximum pressure campaign on the Iranians, which gave the Arabs confidence to have peace with Israel. So now... Literally just over 100 days into the Biden administration, they've reversed all that to bring another issue into this. You know, just like Biden's decision to reverse all of Trump's border policies have precipitated a crisis on the southern border, Biden's decision to reverse all of Trump's Middle East policies have precipitated a crisis in the Middle East. It's like a formula that they're working off of here. <laughs> wonderful formula. Folks can't see me, but one of the reasons why I'm smiling at Mark right now is because he manages to work John Kerry into pretty much every podcast. John Kerry should become our mascot. <laughs> at the end of the day, these are, I, I hate to say it, these are truisms in national security policy. When you project weakness, people take advantage of it, right? Yeah. Yep. So we have a, an awesome guest today who really knows this issue extraordinarily well, and we were really lucky to get him. Jonathan Shanzer is the Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He oversees all of their work there, and he's also on the leadership team at their Center on Economic and Financial Power. He was a terrorism finance analyst at the Department of the Treasury, and so he knows backwards and forwards how all of these nasty groups get their money. He used to be at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He is an old friend of, of ours, and I think you're going to really like what he has to say. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we've got an Israeli-Palestinian conflict going on, which is not really an Israeli-Palestinian conflict because the thousands of missiles that are raining down on Israel come from Iran. And Iran is the, uh, the prime funder of Hamas. It's a, uh, some would argue, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Iranian regime in many ways. So really, isn't this an Iranian attack on Israel by proxy? And what is Iran up to? Absolutely. I, I would actually argue that this current conflict that we're seeing in Gaza 
is an extension of what the Israelis have been calling the war between wars. There's a gray zone conflict that's been taking place across the Middle East, uh, where the Israelis have been striking Iranian weaponry that is being transferred by way of Syria into Lebanon to Hezbollah. We see attacks between the Israelis and the Iranians on the high seas. We've seen it in the Gulf of Oman and the Red Sea. We've seen the Israelis going after Iranian nuclear assets through cyber means as well. All of this has been, I think, really a decision on the part of Israel to respond to Iran's stepping up of its terror apparatus across the region. And so after Israel, I would say over the last several months has really been eating Iran's lunch uh, with this war between wars, this gray zone warfare that's been going on. One gets a sense now that the Iranians have decided to deploy Hamas as a way to even the score. Let's step back for a second. You know, there's, we're all sort of familiar with Israeli-Palestinian conflicts of various kinds. And I think it's useful for our listeners to just step back for a moment. And I, what I want to do is actually start with Sheikh Jarrah. Now, for the uninitiated, Sheikh Jarrah is a, is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And this dispute over a piece of property was actually the casus belli in this particular iteration of Israel's battle with the various Palestinians. Can you just talk a little bit about that for a moment? Sure. So if you read some of the accounts of this conflict, they will all say that it started when Israel decided to evict four families from homes in Sheikh Jarrah in this uh, neighborhood in eastern Jerusalem. The case dates back for quite a while now, a century ago, this was property that was held by Jews living in pre-Israel Palestine. Then after 1948, the territory was controlled by the Jordanians, occupied in fact by the Jordanians, and they took control. At that point, you had Arab residents that took over this property. The deed holders to these four homes took the case to court in Israel. It wound its way through the Israeli court system the Israeli court system found in favor of the Jewish families. Uh, I should just say here that Israel's court system is really beyond reproach. It probably leans pretty left, all things considered, and it's a, it's a serious judicial system. So there's no saying, I think, here that you know this was all politically motivated. I do think that maybe Israel, just because it had the ability or the right to evict, doesn't mean that they should have. And I think there was a question of timing as well. But the idea that this Hamel sparked the broader conflict is also ridiculous in one other sense. There was anger in Jerusalem over this. There's no doubt among the Arab-Israeli population. But how this connects back to Hamas firing rockets into Israel in response when Gaza was not touched by this at all, it really defies logic. That, as you say, was sort of a really a pretext, I think. Uh, but then we had fighting uh, on the Temple Mount and protests on uh, Jerusalem Day, which celebrates the reunification of Jerusalem in during the Six-Day War for Israel. Obviously not a great day for the Arabs, Palestinians, but a day to be celebrated in Israel and yet more problems. A again, how real were any of these issues in terms of Israeli judgment, in terms of how the Israelis behaved, or were they all pretexts? Talk a little bit about that one too. Sure, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's a great question. And I think it's probably important to also broaden out and look at the unrest that we've seen over the last week in places like Lod 
and Akko and Ramla and other uh, what we would call mixed cities inside Israel, there is clearly some anger here. It is directed at the Israeli government. There is frustration. Now, some of it is, I think, motivated by nationalism. I do wonder, because it was coordinated along with the eruption of this conflict with Gaza, whether there may be a hidden hand. We know, for example, Turkey has been buying up property in Jerusalem and really cultivating Islamist groups. So we could have seen maybe a state sponsor. I think that's still unproven. But I think that when the dust settles from this conflict, and we're hearing it already from Israeli politicians, they're saying that there is some soul searching to be done, that there are bridges that need to be rebuilt between the Jewish and Arab communities in Israel, because clearly this is something that they haven't quite ever seen before. Not during the second intifada, when it erupted in 2000, did we see so many people coming out into the streets, Israeli citizens who typically enjoy a lot of perks for being uh, citizens of the Jewish state, right? Through uh, healthcare, education, and other services, it's generally considered to be a decent place to live for the Arab citizens, even if they don't feel like they're completely at ease with the politics of the country. So I think there's gonna be a lot done to try to bridge those gaps when this conflict is over. Whether that's successful remains to be seen. So we've talked about the pretext for the current conflict, but let's talk about the real causes of the, of the conflict. You, you mentioned the war between wars and the success that Israel has had in striking Iranian assets in, in Syria and other places around the world and how Iran has been taking it on the chin from the, from the Israelis for a while. But the other thing that happened in the Middle East over the last few years was the Trump administration negotiated not one, not two, not three, but four Arab-Israeli peace deals. And that sort of shattered the consensus in the Middle East, which had been, well, peace goes through Ramallah. And uh, you have to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before uh, you can solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the Trump administration proved that's not the case. So Iran was sort of seeing this new coalition forming, Arab-Israeli coalition to contain them. And the Palestinians were unhappy because they were, or at least yeah, Hamas was unhappy because they were getting sidelined. How did that play into uh, what's happening, what we're seeing today? Well, I think that absolutely the Palestinians are feeling like they have been marginalized to a certain extent. I think the Abraham Accords were absolutely a testament to the fact that the Palestinian national project is now not considered a priority, certainly not in the way that it once had by the Arab states, that they've deprioritized it, that they don't see it as a core national interest any longer. It doesn't mean, by the way, that they've given up entirely on wanting a Palestinian state or caring for their Arab brethren. It just means that they're not going to go to war over this any longer, and they're not going to make it a top diplomatic priority um, as they had in years past, because quite frankly, it was time and money down the drain. And it led to a more unstable region. And, and they quite frankly saw Iran as more of a threat. This is sort of, I don't know, an empire strikes back moment, right? That we had relative quiet. I think, by the way, the entire region was probably just quaking over what Donald Trump would do if something like this erupted during his time in office. And I think that probably explains the quiet that we saw over those four years. The unpredictability of Donald Trump, I think, was a deterrent for Iran, for Hamas, for Hezbollah, for the whole crew. There's a new regime, obviously, uh, a new sheriff in town here in the, in the US, and I think they're testing a bit. And quite frankly, I think Iran is wondering whether it can get away with this right now, given that we're about to, from all indications, enter back into an Iran nuclear deal that will yield them billions of dollars and give them a green light, I think, to continue to engage in this kind of malign activity around the region. Because as you know, 
the deal that is going to be restruck, it's going to be a revival of the 2015 nuclear deal that contained nothing in it about support for terrorism, about these sort of smaller rocket proliferation problems. These are things that were not going to be addressed and will not be addressed this time either. So it looks like a green light. And uh, I think that does explain, at least to some extent, why we're seeing this conflict now. So another reason I think that we're seeing this is Palestinian politics. You know, nobody pays attention. We're all we're all fixated on Bibi Netanyahu, and no one pays attention to President for Life Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president in the 16th year of his four-year term, called elections for what were supposed to be you know next month, and it really looked like he was going to lose, like Fatah, his party was going to lose, and that Hamas was going to end up the victor. Those elections were canceled. Doesn't Hamas have a political axe to grind here in addition to propitiating its sponsors in Tehran? Absolutely. And I think you're 100% right that this is um, an area that has just gone ignored. Palestinian politics has been kind of a hobby of mine for, for a long time now. Look, I would say this, that Hamas's history is one of being supplanted by the PLO. That's, I think, a fact that we, we cannot dispute. Uh, Hamas came onto the scene in the late 1980s during the first intifada, and Yasser Arafat decided that he was going to you know, make peace with Israel or at least start a peace process, and that obviated the need for the intifada that Hamas had launched, and they were sidelined. They were relegated to a, a secondary concern, and that's when we began to see the suicide bombings. You know, then you have the elections that took place in 2006. Hamas won those elections at the behest of the United States and Israel. The PLO canceled the results of those elections and Hamas was yet again sidelined. So here you have this new opportunity in September of last year. The Palestinians announced, by the way, I think largely in response to the Abraham Accords and a desire to put the Palestinian issue back on the map, they reannounced these elections after many, many years of stalled reconciliation attempts they announced these uh, new elections. They were scheduled for May 22nd. And um, as the polling started to come in, it became very clear to Israel, as well as to the United States, and I think to a lot of others in the region, including the Arab states, that this was going to be a disaster, that Hamas was going to at least win a minority of the seats, if not an outright majority. And then that would have triggered all sorts of problems, including legislation here in the United States spearheaded by a guy in 2006 named Senator Joe Biden that would have cut American funds to the Palestinian Authority if there was Hamas involvement. So it would have been a complete disaster. Abbas understood it. And Abbas, of course, as you noted, he's strongman for life. He's 16 years into a four-year term. He's probably thinking to himself, sure, why not? I'll cancel. I've already done it a bunch of times. What does it really matter? But really, I think the response that we're seeing from Hamas is an attempt to reassert primacy in the Palestinian political realm. And the way to do that, if you can't do it through the ballot box, is by firing rockets at Israel, because that is what the Palestinians, quite frankly, appreciate. It's wildly popular, not among everybody, but let's just say among more than 50% of the population, they're cheering this on. And this is giving Hamas maybe a bigger place in the Palestinian political scene without having run in elections. 
Talk a little bit about how the Iran nuclear deal plays into this, because obviously the Trump administration pulled out of it. The Biden administration wants to get back into it. And, you know, if the Biden administration were to succeed in bringing Iran back into the nuclear deal, that would mean uh, sanctions lifted, a huge cash flow back into uh, to Tehran. And, you know, Hamas is funded by Iran. So literally the Iranian nuclear deal would be paying for the missiles, replacing the missiles that are being fired right now. How, how does this all play? together in, in what's happening today. All right, I think you just summed it up perfectly, that, that the United States, at the end of the day, will be funding both sides of the Israel-Hamas conflict once it gets back into the Iran deal. And I think, by the way, that might have something to do with why the Biden administration has been relatively quiet, why they've sent a relatively low-level official to try to send messages to Israel and the Palestinians. This, Hadi Amr is a competent person, but there's no way that he's going to broker peace in the region. The administration has actually given the Israelis a certain amount of top cover at the UN. And the Biden administration has been relatively quiet, even in the face of you know, some questionable decisions made by Israel. I think we'll probably ultimately see that they were justified, but Israel's taking a lot of heat for taking out that building in Gaza that housed the AP and Al Jazeera offices, and the administration has been quiet. Why? Because I think in a few weeks, we're going to see they're getting back into the JCPOA, and that money that is going to be released will go to supporting not just Hamas, but also Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and a range of other Shiite terrorist groups. By the way, we can also throw the Houthis in there you know, you name it, uh, you know, the Iranians have a pretty long list of, of terrorist groups that they sponsor. So that is going to be one of the end results of getting back into the JCPOA. It will be a boon for terrorist organizations sponsored by Iran. Iran knows this, and, and perhaps it's for that reason that they're encouraging Iran, to, uh, or Hamas rather, to continue to fire these rockets uh, because they know that they're just gonna be able to replenish them in, you know, a fairly short amount of time because there will be cash on hand. You mentioned the bombing of the AP headquarters. I just wanted to drill down on that for a second because that's been all over the news. You know, the, the Committee to Protect Journalists has put out a very strongly worded statement. The AP reported on what happened. They failed to mention in their reporting that it was also a Hamas military intelligence headquarters and they were building weapons in the, in the building as well. And that Israel gave them an hour's notice, which meant that they probably wouldn't take out the Hamas uh, leaders who were there. And that didn't get mentioned in the AP's reporting. Did the Associated Press not notice all the Hamas people wandering around their neighbors uh, in the building, wandering around and, you know, bumping into them in the hallways and the, at the coffee clatch about terrorist plots? Is that, the, you know, it, it, these investigative reporters didn't notice <laughs> that there were terrorists? Yeah, this is one of these things that I think it'll it'll go on for a while. As you know, episodes like these, it's it's rare that, that they're resolved quickly and there'll probably be multiple investigations into this. The idea that the reporters themselves would not have known, look, it's possible because it's not like, you know, they go into the elevator and they see that on floor three, Hamas intelligence and the basement, it's a Hamas production facility. And I'm sure there were no labels, you know, on the elevator, right? But at the same time, uh, a couple of things I think are worth noting. One, if you recall back in the Iraq war, um, after the US invasion, there was a lot of concern voiced by the Bush administration back then about Al Jazeera's working with terrorists in Iraq. And you know, you got you have to remember here that Al Jazeera is wholly owned by the government of Qatar. And the government of Qatar is a sponsor of Hamas. It also, by the way, is a government that works with the Taliban, it works with Al-Qaeda, all sorts of terror finance problems that have been coming out of that country for years. I don't have anything directly that I can attribute to uh, Al Jazeera here, but I'll just say it would fit a pattern that we've seen in the past. 
And by the way, there have also been people who've talked about how AP has been aware in the past of Hamas firing rockets near their facilities, but wouldn't write about it, wouldn't talk about it. In other words, it seems as though really probably every journalist that works in Gaza has kind of agreed to be a human shield on some level or another. If they're gonna get close to Hamas, then they are looking for Hamas's protection. And if you're gonna be in Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas, you're looking for Hamas's protection. Now, I will say that, you know, the Israelis did, um, they warned everybody to get out. They dropped the knock-knock bomb on the top of the building to let everybody know that a, uh, an explosion was imminent. And then it was a rather controlled explosion. If you saw, they really, I think, tried to mitigate the damage to the surrounding area. And so I think they saved lives, but I think you're still going to see, right? This is a, a, a thing within the, I don't know, in Western culture that you just simply don't do that. And I think for Israel, the answer is going to be ultimately, if they want to be exonerated, they're going to have to share the intelligence that led to this strike. And we know that they've provided it to the Biden administration. We know that the Biden administration has seen it, and it is apparently satisfactory enough for them to not weigh in any longer or criticize the Israelis. But I don't think that's going to be enough for public opinion. I think the Israelis are still going to get hammered. And of course, it doesn't help that the Israelis appear to have misled the media uh, two days before that, you know, signaling that there was going to be a ground invasion. It was printed in multiple publications. And then once Hamas knew that that was happening, or at least believe it was happening, the Israelis began to strike their underground tunnel system, leading to significant damages on Hamas's side. So I think the media is smarting twice over things that Israel has done. I think one of them can be explained. That'll be the AP Al Jazeera building. The other one, I think the Israelis are probably going to have to own up that they probably misled the media. Well, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the media on this. The reporting that we've seen has been pretty one-sided, particularly on that building strike, just as a complete aside, uh, but I know that it will be entertaining, at least for those of us on this call. When I was a journalist in Israel, lo, these many years ago, I met with uh, Sheikh Yassin, who was the founder and the spiritual leader of Hamas. He has since met an, an untimely or perhaps a timely end at the hands of the Israelis. But who brought me to meet him? A Reuters reporter. Right who was subsequently arrested for working for Hamas. And Reuters was very up in arms about that at the time. But of course, he was definitely, it wasn't just that he knew where he lived, it's that he was a very, very much a, a, a go-between. So yeah, this has happened before. So let me just ask you a little bit about the, the end game here. There are two pieces that I'm really interested in. The one is traditionally, what we see whenever there's this kind of a conflict between Israel and the Palestinian forces, whether Hamas or others, is that there's a huge push for peace, right? Afterwards, there's just, we have to have a conference, right? Now is the time. I have a feeling that's not gonna be the case this time, but I'm curious what you think. And part two, I'd really love your take on the impact on the Israeli political scene, because of course, Bibi Netanyahu had just lost his hold on uh, the chance to form a government and it had been handed by the president of Israel to his rival. Now, of course, Bibi is kind of back in the driver's seat. You know, the other side has lost support from Arab parties and it looks like things are gonna be a mess again. Anyway, two kind of hard questions, but both really important. Okay, both good. I think maybe it's just important to preface for, for just 30 seconds about what we're seeing in terms of signs that we're in an end game. 
because I do think right now that's the indication. Um, and that is specifically that Israel is running out of, let's just say, valuable targets. What they do is they collect the target bank over the course of the years of relative quiet, and then they start to strike those. So whether it's underground tunnels, rocket making facilities, rocket storage facilities, the homes of the top commanders, the top commanders themselves, all those things have played out over the last, you know, eight, nine days. And, you know, you get a sense that the target bank may be depleting slowly. Hamas is not able to fire as many salvos of rockets at once. And so the pace is slowing. And this is, I think, where you begin to see the pressure coming from the international community to end the conflict or to bring, you know, to bring things to, you know, at least uh, bring it down a notch and then eventually agree to the terms. Um, Both sides are still looking for a way to declare victory. And both sides probably can to some extent or another. Hamas rolled out new technology. The Israelis destroyed a lot of it. They both can say we we won. I think the Israelis clearly got the upper hand here, but you know Hamas will still have its narrative. I am not sure. I think, as you suggest, that there's going to be some kind of big peace agreement or an attempt at a conference, like an Annapolis conference or something like that. I think it's highly unlikely because look, the, the Biden administration has already said it's not interested in pursuing this kind of thing. They don't think the timing is right. We've already talked about. Mahmoud Abbas and how he's way past his expiration date as the leader of the Palestinians. You've got the chaos in Israel, which we'll get to in a second. It's probably not the right time for something like this. Then an agreement probably wouldn't hold. I think there is there are questions about whether there are things that can be done to mitigate the social challenges in Gaza financially. I mean, look, Israel provides a huge amount of assistance to the Gaza Strip, even as it keeps it under blockade. And the question is, is there more that can be done or should they not be doing anything at all? Because clearly a lot of this has been diverted into you know, military capabilities. So there's going to be, I think, a big discussion about the fate of Gaza, which is not the same as two-state solution chasing dreams that I think usually happen after these sorts of conflicts. Now, for the Israeli political scene, it's interesting because heading into this conflict, Netanyahu had just lost his mandate to form a government. He had been given the mandate. He was given the first shot at it by President uh, Reuven Rivlin uh, after the fourth round of elections. He was unable to pull together a coalition of the 61 seats out of the 120 Knesset seats totally available. You get 61, you can form a coalition. Bibi couldn't do it. So they were having discussions with Yair Lapid, who was a center-left politician, and Naftali Bennett, who was a right-wing settler-supporting uh, politician, and the two of them were going to join hands in a very unlikely marriage that would have ousted Netanyahu. And then in the middle of all of this, Bennett, the right-wing settler guy, decides, I can't do this anymore. Said, you know, we have to stick together and this, we need a right-wing coalition. What basically Bennett did is he renounced his own candidacy and his, he renounced his own ability to lead Israel. I think he probably did himself a lot of damage grave damage in terms of his own political persona, in terms of how Israelis are going to view him moving forward. I don't think he will be seen as a serious candidate. Lapid still remains this guy that is out there trying to get anybody who will join him to create a coalition that would oust Netanyahu. I think that is unlikely. And I think that as a result of this conflict, we're likely headed back into a fifth round of elections. That's my take for now. My exit question, final question is, what is Iran's long game here? How does this play out for them in, in, the, in the long run? And also, 
how does this affect the future of Arab-Israeli peace? So, you know, we had four Abraham Accords. The Trump administration exiting said that there were other countries lined up that were, that were on the cusp of signing agreements. How does this conflict and Iran's play here affect the future of Arab-Israeli peace? Yeah, um, both, I mean, excellent questions. And I think the Iran question is easier to answer than the Arab question. The Arab states, you know, there are a couple of, of countries that I think were prepared to, to line up and, and do the same. I would say Oman was probably one of them. Kuwait was a possibility. Maybe the Qataris, although I think that's a pretty low probability shot. But then there was also the Saudis, right? All these countries were at least chewing on the idea of normalization with Israel. I think this is going to be a setback, at least for the near term. I think that... Um, was that Iran's goal to undermine... I, look, I'm sure Iran probably understood the conflict with Gaza would um, would probably create tensions within the Abraham Accords uh, countries. And you've seen a, some silence from these countries, not supporting Israel, but not really hammering Hamas or Iran either. They've been somewhat muted. And, um, you know, I think it actually would have been really smart for the Arab countries to come out and criticize Israel, but also condemn Iran at the same time. That would have been, if you know, if any of these countries had asked, that would have been my advice. And that's really how, you know, that's how they should have navigated it. Instead, they were a bit quiet. I think they're also feeling a little bit of pressure from the Biden administration on this question of Iran and normalization with the region, with the Iranians normalizing with the region as a result of the nuclear deal, which I think is fanciful thinking. But nevertheless, they're feeling some pressure that they maybe, you know, may have succumbed to. But I I think we can watch for the future, uh, assuming there isn't another conflict in another year or so. Yeah, you may see other countries begin to join in, but I think this was probably a short-term setback to other countries joining the Abraham Accords, at least for now. As for Iran, their goals remain the same. They uh, continue to push forward uh, in terms of potential nuclear capabilities. I think they're probably in a place where they could sneak out, you know, somewhere down the, down the line. But certainly, you know, if they sign this agreement with the United States, they still have an exit strategy for getting back into nuclear facilities and structures and, you know, enriching uranium, et cetera. It's a patient pathway, as my colleague Mark Dubowitz puts it, for a nuclear weapon that in another five years or so, it's all laid out for them if they just hold tight and collect the money and wait. And they could potentially move quicker if they wanted to. But for the immediate term, I'm looking at, uh, at Iran's strategy of arming its proxies closer and closer to Israel's borders, arming these enemies of Israel with weapons that are increasingly sophisticated. So drones, which we saw some of these appeared in the, in the most recent conflict. Hezbollah has, they have precision guided munitions, PGMs. Now we have not seen them appear in Gaza yet, but uh, in the next conflict, we could see them. And these are extremely dangerous because they have the ability to attack targets within 10 yards of where they intended and that they could potentially evade Iron Dome. And so what Iran is doing is it's trying to basically turn Israel into Seoul, much in the same way that the North Koreans have uh, amassed this huge arsenal of weapons that they can unleash on their southern neighbors, allies of the United States. This is what Iran is doing with Israel, and they're doing it in Lebanon, they're doing it in Syria, and they're doing it in Gaza. And ultimately, I think the great fear for Israel is that there could be a wider conflagration that could involve multiple fronts. And that will be the nightmare scenario that Israel tries to avoid. And that's why the war between wars will continue, where Israel will continue to strike 
Iranian assets and some of its proxies assets in the gray zone uh, in the dark of night. And I think that's what we should expect probably for the next few years, but that will not stop Iran from trying to arm its proxies and prepare for a next war, which could be very ugly. And on that uplifting note, sounds like we're going to have to have you, we're going to have to have you back to talk about all of this. What a fascinating discussion, Jonathan. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We're really grateful. My pleasure. Okay, Danny. So I want to talk about the Jew hatred and the contempt for Israel that exists in the media and the coverage of this and the sort of the AP headquarters slash Al Jazeera headquarters is just one of them. It's like what happens over and over again is that Israel is attacked. You know, Israel doesn't want war. Israel doesn't want a conflict. Israel's attacked. The number of children, if it wasn't for the Iron Dome that would be dead in Israel today, would far outweigh anything that's going that's happening in, in Gaza. Israel's attacked. It responds and go on the IDF Twitter feed and they they actually have video of Israeli pilots calling off a strike because they see children. They go out of their way to prevent children from being killed and for, for civilians from being killed. But as you pointed out, Hamas uses them as human shields, hides their military intelligence and bomb building in a journalistic, uh, in a journalist headquarters, hides them next to schools and hospitals and parks. And the Israelis, despite their best efforts, occasionally are going to, civilians are going to die because it's a war. And everybody goes and says, Israel is, you know, Israel's not a democracy. They're causing, they're committing genocide and all the rest of it. And I want to tell you, I'm just sick of it. I took my kids two summers ago to Auschwitz and we saw what happened, the consequences of the last time the Jews were defenseless against an enemy seeking their destruction. And I'm sorry, but I have no sympathy for people who blame Israel because the Jews have decided nobody's ever going to do that to us again, period. And they're going to be strong enough and they're going to have the will to defend themselves. And God bless them for doing it. Imagine if we had enemies in Canada and Mexico raining missiles on us and threatening to destroy our country and wipe us off the map every day. We would take some pretty strong action to deal with that problem. But Israel does it. And so there go the apartheid regime again. I'm just sick of it. Sorry, I, I, I know that's a rant, but I'm just so disgusted by the media coverage of this. I mean, you know, obviously I agree with you, but... I think what has been a pleasant surprise to me is that while we've seen the Biden administration really, I would say, be much further left on a whole variety of issues than we had hoped, here I think that they have disappointed, you know, the AOCs and the Ilhan Omars, all of the supporters of Hamas that find themselves on the far fringes of the Democratic Party. Perhaps it's because, as Jonathan suggests, they recognize that they will soon be funding groups like Hamas in their support of Iran. But perhaps it is that they recognize that, in fact, Israel does have a right to defend itself. That has been very much the line of this administration. Israel has a right to defend itself. Hamas is violating the laws of war. Hamas is a terrorist organization. You know, I just wish, as we said in the conversation with Jonathan, I just wish that this administration understood how its actions vis-a-vis -vis the JCPOA were helping to cause, to encourage, this kind of behavior by Iran's proxies. You know, at the end of the day, what was it that drove all of the Sunni Arab countries and Israel together after the Obama administration? 
Sure, it was partly the Iran nuclear deal and how bad its provisions were and how it was going to lead to an Iran with nuclear weapons. But in part, it really was the unwillingness of that administration to lean hard on Iran for the other things it was doing. If it had just been a nuclear deal, but tough on terror, tough on human rights, tough on all their proxies, I think a lot of people would have been a lot more tolerant. That's the thing that the Biden administration is replicating. They are going to unleash a fury of terrorism that the US taxpayer is going to end up paying for. That's the mistake they're making again. All I will say is this, Danny, this wouldn't be happening if Donald Trump were president. Just wouldn't. Well, and, and, and on top of that, if you like this, wait until they rejoin the nuclear deal and lift all the sanctions and the second Biden flow of cash comes flowing into Iran. Because let's recall that when Donald Trump took office, Iran was using that money. They were on the march across the Middle East. They were, they were sowing terror and funding proxies and causing all sorts of uh, terror around across the region. And the maximum pressure campaign certainly didn't put an end to that, but it certainly constrained it. They had less money to fund their, their proxies in Syria and other places. And now the Biden administration thinks that we will advance peace in the Middle East by giving Iran billions and billions of dollars in cash. Give me a break. Mark? It's going to be a cold day in hell when I miss Donald Trump's presidency. I'll be honest with you. And, we, you know, our listeners have all heard this. You know, you know, I agree with you about all of the issues in the Middle East. I just feel like, God, we can do better than Joe Biden's policy and we can do better than Donald Trump. I just wish we would. We couldn't do better than Donald Trump's Middle East policy. It wasn't flawless, but four Arab-Israeli peace accords ain't nothing, Danny. No president has ever accomplished that. So, you know, I, you know where I stand on January 6th and all the flaws like that, but we have to be able to hold two things at once. Our revulsion for certain things about the Trump administration doesn't obviate the success that he had in the Middle East and the absolute stupidity in undoing anything that Donald Trump did because it was Donald Trump, because we're seeing that on the southern border and we're seeing it in the Middle East right now. Well, amen to that, I guess. Anyway, don't forget, listen, subscribe, share the podcast, write to us. We love hearing from you. Thank you to all of you who have shared your ideas and, and, and some of your criticisms with us. And uh, we'll see you next week. Take care. Our producer is Alexa Santry. And a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Um.